Okay, we're recording. And uh, da, 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 and yes, here we go. Okay, I'm on. I'm Abby Disney, and you're listening to All Ears. At this point, I'd normally go on to say that this is a podcast about inequality. But actually, this is a podcast that is switching gears a bit. After all, I care about inequality because I care about justice. And years of injustice and inequity have come to a head in this moment we now face. It's a crisis and a call to action. It's not just a call to action for people of color, for young people, or any group in particular. It's a call to all Americans. I plan to use the platform that I have and share it with some of the extremely brilliant and brave movement leaders who are looking to change the structures and systems, both public and personal, that have plagued this country since day one. I want to listen and learn from them about what they're doing and why, and I hope to help all of you learn from them so that you can figure out what your role in this historic moment should be. Remember, you can't stand still on a moving train, and not to have a role is a role in itself. So I am super excited today about our guest because I have admired him for so many years. Reverend William Barber has spent a lifetime fighting injustice in every iteration. He's a towering figure on the landscape of social justice. He insists on a moral interrogation of our social and political problems. And every time I hear him speak, I swear I hear a moral alarm clock go off in my heart. He's the founder of the Moral Mondays movement, president of Repairers of the Breach, and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, which is a campaign that Martin Luther King started toward the end of his life. And he's a great follow on Twitter. So, Reverend Barber, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad I can be on with you. As, as a voice of moral clarity, and that's how I understand you, what is happening right now? What's happening? I think that we're in a series, in a, in a season of public mourning. And there's a scripture in the Bible that said, there's a sound coming from Rachel, uh, Rama, Rachel mourning and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. We're dealing with compounded anger, compounded frustration, compounded tears, or having to deal with death over and over again. Yeah. Before COVID happened, we had something like 700 people a day dying from poverty. Most people weren't talking about it, but that was happening. Uh, a quarter million people a year. Then COVID hits, over 100,000 people have died. Then we find out that 60% that of them or more didn't have to die if we hadn't had such an irresponsible and negligent uh, reaction from our government. And then we see a lynching from start to finish we actually see a lynching in front of us and hear the person crying out. And all of that has produced this kind of public mourning where people are saying something's wrong. We may not even know everything that is wrong, but we know a whole lot's wrong when the state is not protecting life. Do you think that white people who are marching are feeling the same kind of mourning that people of color are? I don't know if it's the same. I think that what happened is when George Floyd said, I can't breathe, yeah. that a lot of other people can identify. Well, what the, well, his cry, his cry, I can't breathe, I think it touched something deeply. 
in all people. But I don't separate it from all the other pressures and all the other deaths and all the way that so many Americans, so many people are feeling like there's this knee on their neck as well. There's this pressure on them as well. And I think there is a lot of young people saying, we, you know, we heard these stories from our parents. We're not going to allow this to continue in the time in which we live. I think that there's so many pressures, you know, in the Poor People's Campaign, we talk about the many, many public policies that actually produce, if you will, death. I mean, you think about it. We are in the midst of a public health crisis. And coming into that, we had 80 million people uninsured or underinsured and people dying, literally dying, because they don't have something as basic as healthcare. So there's just too much death and too much, too, too much um, death that doesn't have to be. And so I think when, when George sighed and said, I can't breathe, not only did people see and hear the racism, it, it touched something deep in people's spirit to say, you know, in far too many ways, too many people can't breathe either. Too many people are facing too much pain. Mm. Do you think this is the first time a lot of folks are really feeling it? I think so. I think in, in a real sense. And, and feeling it so, so deep because they were already so open. There was so much mourning already going on in this country. That's, that's what I keep driving home to folks. We had 100,000 deaths in less than three months. You know, that's a whole lot of dying. That's more dying than, than happened in Vietnam. And then it was dying that didn't have to be dying by, 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 by government negligence. And then we saw this kid shot with a shotgun. You know, and we said, what in the world? Then we hear about another lady who shot in her house when they break in. And then this 17-year-old girl forces us to see this in almost the same way Emmett Till's mother made America look at Emmett Till's death when she would not have a closed casket. And so in the midst of all this death and dying and so much of it unnecessary, I want to keep driving that home, unnecessary, then we just see this blatant killing. And, and, what, and what got to folk, Abigail, it's not just that George died. The, the officer readjusted his weight, and we saw that. The officer put his, his, his glasses on the top of his head in almost a casual way. The officer put both hands in his pocket to make sure his full weight. And then, Abigail, the officer looked at the camera with a smirk. And, and then he posed, like many of us have seen hunters pose when they kill animals for trophies. That's what got me, Abigail. When I saw the tape, I mean, I saw I saw, But when I saw him posing... I broke, it, it broke something in me and in my, because I've seen that pose, but it was always mm. over animals. Yeah. There's a biblical quality to the way you talk about these things, obviously. And you talk about a, a kind of a moral awakening. But I think most people are thinking of this as a political moment. And so I'm wondering if you can help me understand, like, what's different between a moral and a political awakening? Well, for me, it's not a lot of difference because in the scriptures that I read, there are over 2,000 scriptures in the Bible, the most of any theme that has to do with 
what we are required to do towards the poor, the broken, the stranger, the immigrant, and the vulnerable. So in my reading of texts, I don't separate Jesus from justice. The prophets of the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, didn't do that either. In fact, what they called us to was what we're seeing now, is deep lamenting and mourning. There's a scripture in the book of Amos. We often hear, uh, remember Dr. King saying, let justice roll down like waters, righteousness like a mighty stream. But, but before you get to that scripture, about three scriptures above it, it actually says, God says, I'm looking for a remnant of people who are so disgusted by what they see and all of the death and all of the destruction, I'm paraphrasing it, that they will lament in the street, that they will wail openly, that they will go in the streets and shut down the malls and shut down the businesses and refuse to, to, to take no for an answer. And, and then it says, let justice roll down like waters. So I think in this moment, it is deeply moral and it is deeply political. And you cannot separate the cries in the street because the morning is telling us what we need to do. Now, if we turn this morning and cr these cries into public policy that challenges all of the policies of death, the things that don't have to be, then then, then we may, we'll be better on the other side. If we don't, God help us. So let, let me ask you then, because there's, there's always this question of, look, why does this persist in this country? Why is this deep original sin of racism so mm. powerfully wired into the country? And some people argue, and I, I think there is some truth to this, that you know there was never a truth and reconciliation process once the slaves were emancipated. And goodness knows the, the atrocities have continued since then. But the fact that there's never been the mourning period, there's never been the lamentation, there's never been the apology, there's never been an ownership of responsibility, and God knows reconciliation. Do you think it's possible for there to be some kind of reconciliation and healing of these ruptures at this time? Are we on our way into maybe something like that? I pray so. That's what we're working towards in the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. That's why we say there are five interlocking injustices that America has to deal with. Systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, denial of health care, the war economy, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. Uh, but all five of them are interlocking, and they can't be dealt with separately. I pray that America recognizes that she has two great wounds, at least open, the wound of racism and the wound of poverty. The pandemic has exposed those wounds as being continual threats to our national security. But I will say, Abigail, we first have to have conciliation. Mm. You can't have wreck. You can't read something that you never had. Mm -hmm. And as you rightly said, we had, a, we had even a civil war, but we never really had repentance. If you can keep people uh, in slavery for 250 years and then another 100 years of Jim Crow and then just say, oops, I'm sorry. That's not reconciliation or reparation. That's a cop-out. Yeah. If I might, real quickly, mm -hmm. there's these elements that we have to understand about racism and, and, and whiteness. The system of slavery was upheld by bad biology, that is, you can look at a person's skin color and tell their brain capacity. 
sick sociology that people by design have to have live in a hierarchy. Somebody's over, somebody's under. Evil economics, the end justifies the means. And so it doesn't matter what you do as long as at the end of you have economic prosperity. But then the fourth pillar that undergirded slavery was heretical ontology. And that is God intended it this mm-hmm. way. So that racism is not just a sociological problem, it's a theological problem. It literally is a religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And until you deal with it from that perspective and understand it's not just a feeling, it is a religion that actually determines public policy. So you have to repent of it in the heart, but you also, as Dr. King says, have to change the heart of our policies. We talk a bit about, you know, off and on in this program and in my life, I talk about white fragility. Even white people who, you know, seem to be liberal and Democrats and would vote for Obama a third time, all of that, still kind of can't get comfortable with the idea that it's not perfect yet. Mm -hmm. Why are they so averse to talking about first conciliation and then reconciliation? Well, maybe because to, to talk about conciliation means that we all have to disassociate from the myth and the mythologies that we've been taught. You know, it's earth shattering to have to deal with. I never will forget when the the candidate for governor lost to Doug Wilder, Doug Wilder's first black governor of Virginia, and the candidate that lost to him kept calling for recounts. And I asked one day, I said, why don't he stop? And one of the deacons in my church who wasn't even a college educated man said, Reverend Barber, his mama lied to him. He can't stop. I said, what do you mean? He said his mama told him every day of his life he might have he might lose to a black man on a basketball court or the football mm. field, but never if he ran for governor would he lose to a black man. His whole world is being turned upside down. And when it comes to liberals, so-called liberals, Dr. King talked about that because it was a lot of liberals that wanted peace and the status quo rather than justice. And see, true conciliation means we got to deal with a whole lot of issues around justice, we have to deal with sharing power, we have to deal with an upheaval of, of our history and upheaval of our economics. So we have a whole lot of change in Abigail to do, and there are a whole lot of reasons probably we can't get into on this podcast, but there needs to be a full all-out mm-hmm. repentance, and, a, and that includes the mind, the heart, and it has to include public policy. I'm of the opinion, having spent some time in some very conservative churches with some very religious or believing, rather, believing Christians. Can I tease you real quick on yes, that? Yes, please. Please don't call them conservative. Okay. Because I'm conservative. I, I believe in conserving. See, conserve means to hold on to the essence yeah. of, and the essence of the Bible is love. So I don't know what they are, but a lot of these places ain't conservative. They something, but they're not conservative. Okay. How about heretical ontologists? <laughs> well, maybe they Okay. So I've spent some time with a heretical ontologist, and, and the motion that overwhelmed me that I saw in every church I went to that I was very surprised by was fear. Fear shot through every single person in those places. They were convinced that... If the liberals won, there was going to be a slaughter of Christians. They were all, I mean, they really believe this kind of thing. And I, I asked the minister that I was working with, but like, if you really believe what you say you believe about God welcoming you, why so afraid? 
Mm-hmm. How do you help Americans find their way through the thicket of fear that they are living in right now to get to the point where they can embrace at least some change? Well, let me take on this fear piece first. The Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. And so when you think about racism, it is rooted deeply in fear and in hate. Remember that there was the civil war in the church before there was a civil war in the, in the country. Yeah. The, all the, that's, people don't really realize that. They forget the church split first. You know, North Presbyterian, South Presbyterian, Northern Methodist, South, and it was all over this issue of fear. When the Constitution Convention, there were seven or eight compromises the South demanded out of fear. The Second Amendment and the militia was placed in the Constitution out of fear. The fear of insurrection, the fear of slave revolts, the fear of not having enough representatives, so you Mm -hmm. come up with a three-fifths compromise. Fear, 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 fear. The killings, the deaths in the civil rights movement, fear. I was listening last night to the president, um, one of his advisors, a preacher. He actually said just this past week to his congregation, 1962, when prayer was taken out of the school, 1970, Roe versus Wade, and, and 2015, when same-sex marriage was approved. These are the great traumas of the American society. The infidels are loose. The country is falling apart. This is, he was just preaching this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the midst, so, yeah. right, fear. Now, the black church, and going all the way back to the slave church, had to, had to, had to theologically hold two things together, their faith, an honest appropriation of fear, but then to walk by faith in the midst of that fear, right? And they had to pull that deep from the Holy Scriptures. So they would sing, didn't the Lord deliver Daniel? Surely the Lord can deliver us. That is, But that's honoring that Daniel was in captivity. It's, you never deny the captivity. It is actually an embracing of the captivity, but then believing there is a power and a possibility mm-hmm above and beyond the captivity. Mm. It is this sense of a song that says, hold on just a little while longer. I know justice is coming soon. You sing that looking at the noose. You sing that looking at the evil, but believing that there's something worse than dying, and that is refusing to hold on. And even even if all you do is pass on the gift of holding on, this kind of, of determination that says that I ain't going to let nobody turn me around. I may not change everything, but if I fall, I'm not falling backwards, as Fannie Lou Hamer said, or as Mega Ever said, I'm not falling backwards, I'm falling forward. So what, what the church, the black church had to do was actually come to terms with the fact that every prophet, every person in the Hebrew scriptures stood against injustice, even when it cost them their lives. They had to embrace the cross in order to grab the resurrection. They had to to see life as this place where we're in this battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against wickedness in high places. But you wrestle, and you love, and you don't give up your sense of self. You know, even in the midst of all of this, you fight the systems, but you still hope for transformation. That's what people didn't understand about the courage of Dr. King. When he said, I love, he wasn't saying he liked his enemy. He liked people that, he said, I refuse to become what I hate. I refuse to become 
the very thing I'm trying to fight against because I believe in the possibility of redemption. Because if you don't believe in redemption, if you don't have the prophetic imagination, even in the midst of despair, to believe in the possibility of hope, the despair will destroy you. It will, it will kill you. And so there's a sense in which it, right in the midst of despair, people often ask me, are you optimistic? No. Well, what are you? I'm hopeful. Because I have because my theology, the theology that I grew up with, says I can't walk past the despair. You, you don't have to be a person of faith, honestly, to believe that there's something worse than dying. Oh, no, no. Um, mm-hmm. that, that, that is a really important thing to know, because if all we're doing here on this earth is just lengthening the time we get here and then it's all done, that's a pretty <laughs> meaningless way to go about your business. But, right. you know, what about the young people in the movement who are expressing some impatience with what they think of as their parents' and grandparents' version of nonviolent resistance? I worry about that. Because I feel that nonviolent organizing, the best America has ever been, has been Martin Luther King. So do you encounter that much? And, and what do you say? Not only do I encounter it, I have it. But I think that we misappropriate Dr. King when we, that's what I don't like about the way in which cor- the corporate world has misappropriated him. For instance, we we talk about Dr. King, about I have a dream and missed it. The speech had 17 other minutes to it. And that the speech actually was normalcy no longer. Mm, mm, Normalcy mm. no longer. We forget that he talked about in that speech the fierce urgency of now. Not just now, the fierce urgency of now. He talked about how America better not just see this as a a season of just blowing off steam. Mm. He talked about the marvelous new militancy. That's why I do not like when people describe protests and say, yeah, well, it has to be peaceful. And they juxtapose peaceful from violent. Now, I don't agree with violent protests, but I also know this government is extraordinarily violent. Uh, Dr. King said it pained him to say my government is the greatest purveyor of violence in the whole world. But a protest does not mean a, a, a protest without tension. In fact, Dr. King said he embraced tension in Birmingham. He said he in the Birmingham letter from the Birmingham jail, he said nonviolence, direct action is supposed to create tension. It is supposed to say things are so wrong and we need you to pay attention. Mm. So don't think that Dr. King wasn't urgent, wasn't pushing. The young people now are saying some of the same things Dr. King said if we read the entire Dr. King. Dr. King was saying America's got a short amount of time here. His last sermon that he was going to preach was, if we don't fix this, America may very well go to hell. Mm. Yes. The problem is we are we are taught this small piece of Dr. King or of Fannie Lou Hamer or of James Reed. And, and when it ends up, it's like they were just these loving little guys that just sat around and said, please do right. No, no. Nonviolent direct action has in it a certain right. urgency. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, I just, just so you know, I call that because this happens to women a lot where oh, women yeah. who are quite radical. Right. I call it the IKEA effect, 
where something right. like big and complex and taking up a lot of space like a bookshelf can be flattened down into a little box that you put on a cart and you bring home. Right. And that's what we do. Helen Keller was a ferocious anti-war activist. Florence yeah. Nightingale was a rebel yeah. and 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 sure. profoundly Mother Jones. Yes, exactly. And so Lucretia Lucretia Mott. Yes. Yeah, exactly. We sort of bottle them and hand them to the children because we think the children can't handle the tension. But of course, the children need the tension. They want the tension. They crave it. All the prophets of the Bible were like, look, Jeremiah, oh, that my head was a fountain of waters that I might cry on behalf of my people. Jesus crying over the city saying, Mm. you know, you love the tombs of the prophets. Yes, you love the tombs of the prophets, but you don't love the prophets. You know, I pray that they might be one. I wake up every morning sick and tired of racism. I want it to be over. Now, on the other side, though, we don't wake up every morning saying, if it doesn't change tomorrow, I'm going to self-destruct. Mm. That's a different reality. You know, that's where faith comes into it. And I don't have a very conventional kind of faith. I call myself a militant agnostic. But I do believe in the power of believing that there's something more out there than dying and that there's something important every day. And I have faith in people of faith. Because if they really do what the Bible is telling them to do, um, this would be an entirely different country. You know... I was once on Bill Maher, and I told him I was an atheist, too. He said, what? I said, sure. If you try to tell me to believe in a God who's uh, anti-women and anti-gay and anti-black people and pro-war, I don't believe in that God either. Uh, I, I do. I also tell say that when we talk about faith, you know, it can be the deep religious principles of love and justice, grace and mercy and truth. But also in our movement, we say people, our moral movement can be rooted in the deepest principles of our constitution. Mm-hmm. And I was so upset the other day when the president said the crown jewel of our uh, country is law and order. Uh, he pulled that from George Wallace yeah. and Bill, Bill Bull Connor and every slave master that ever existed yeah. who didn't want the slaves to insurrect. But actually, <clears throat> the crown jewels uh, are establishment of justice. Mm providing for the common defense, promoting the general welfare, ensuring domestic tranquility, equal protection under the law, and freedom of speech. If we actually operated on those principles Mm -hmm. from a moral perspective, if every piece of legislation had to meet Mm -hmm. those standards. Yeah. (laughs) So I slipped up the other day because I was thinking, hmm, I wonder when these protests are going to be over. And, you know, so my life can be more convenient and I can get back to business. And and then I, I the voice in my head said, oh, my God, you didn't really just do that. These protests ne- need to never end. They may transform. They may evolve. But th- this needs to never end. So I guess I'm wondering how you see it morphing um, into whatever might be the next phase. And by what kind of processes and mechanisms do you see it actually translating into palpable change. So I actually think the last thing we need to be worried about is when are the protests as they're going now going to stop, but when is America going to hear? And not just think we're in a regular moment where you can just pass a little piece of legislation. For instance, the Congress rolled out their justice bill and already the protests said, "Mm -mm, mm -mm, that's not what we're talking about. I heard somebody else say, wait a minute, let's don't think that just dealing with police violence 
is the only way you deal with racism mm-hmm. and death because there's racism in the way we deny health care that produces mm-hmm. death. We have economic uh, inequality that produces death, not just for black people either. So America has to deal with the death that is written in its policies. Yeah. You know, somebody else was saying, mm-hmm. wait a minute, now before George was ever killed, murdered by this cop, the systems were suffocating him. He was unemployed because of COVID. He caught COVID. He didn't have health care. He didn't have adequate sick leave. He didn't have adequate unemployment. So he was working a job, a service job that we now call essential, but we don't give people the essential things they need. So wait a minute, COVID and this season of protest guarantees we don't go back to normal. We're in a moral moment. We're in a third reconstruction. These are the birth pains. We had a first reconstruction right after slavery. We had a third reconstruction uh, right after the passage of the Brown versus Board uh, decision. We're in the middle of a third reconstruction. The question before us now is, can America be? It's not just, can we have another bill or can we do another project. We literally are in that moment that is asking, can America or will Mm -hmm. America be? Yeah. So white people do have money disproportionate to black people. I had Darren Walker a few weeks ago and we talked about philanthropy and how helpful and not helpful philanthropy is. And and he reminded me that Andrew Carnegie, who was kind of in many cases the father of modern American philanthropy, said very clearly that capitalism is, you know, unfortunately going to cause some people to be poor. And that's just a bummer. And (laughs) so we do philanthropy to help them because, you know, of their necessary poverty. Where should the white money go? If, If there's a real ally out there who's just got buckets of money, what should they be doing? Well, I kind of, I was sitting there laughing, laughing at the Carnegie quote. Certainly, he said it's going to make some people poor, just not yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure the quote didn't include the word bummer. I think that was my addition, but anyway. <laughs> right, that's, that's, yeah. and, I, and, and, and I, I don't believe that. I think that so much of what we see are matters of choice, not matters of predestination. Yeah. And, and I can't ever accept that because then that goes, feeds right into the philosophy that allowed slavery. You know, well, some people just predestined, yeah. you know. Or that it allows that kind of evil economics. Well, you know, even if it means, you know, some millions of people have to be slaves, as long as we end up with this country with this great GDP in the future, mm. and as long as we can jump ahead of all these European countries economically by enslaving people for a couple of hundred years, well, it's all worth it. But I think that movements that are focused on building a broad base from the ground up intersectional coalitions. Mm -hmm. I struggle. I do struggle sometimes with those who say uh, white people can be involved, but they can't lead. uh, Because, you know, I I remember when Malcolm said that and he turned away from that. But also, that's not our history. The abolitionists, white abolitionists stood right beside Frederick Douglass. They learned from one another. Frederick Douglass challenged them, they challenged him, so forth and so on. Uh, if it had not been for white women who had worked with black women long before Rosa Parks sat down in Montgomery, we might never have a, had a civil rights movement. And so I think that investing in those groups that are, are seeing issues as interlocking. Everything you've heard me talk about today, Abigail, 
is the same thing I talked about when I went to Hazard County, Kentucky, where the Dukes of Hazard come mm-hmm. from, mm-hmm. with the Confederate flag. Quick mm-hmm. story, quick story, and I know we got to go. Quick story. Yes. So we were in Harlan County, Kentucky, and we went up there. People said, you're crazy for going up there. That's that's 89% Trump mm-hmm. country. We went back there. 500 mm-hmm. people came out that, that day, almost all white. We brought some black people from Louisville, and we started teaching them by using these maps showing the interconnection between those who vote for systemic racist voter suppression versus those who block coal miners from having their union rights. And when we finished, one guy stood up and said, Rev, well, damn, we being played against each other. I said, exactly right. Mm. And we organize up there now. We have the Hatfields and the McCoys in the same room with black folk from Louisville organizing. And because of that, Three of those counties turned and they got a new governor. The night he won, he stood at that podium and said, I have learned in this campaign that some things are not about left versus right, liberal versus conservative, or Democrat versus Republican, but right versus wrong. Yeah. I believe that can happen all over the country. And I pray that we recognize that these five interlocking evils, these five interlocking injustices, in all of their breath. You know, we cannot be a society that has 140 million people poor and low wealth, 43% of this country that will go over 50% because of this COVID, and 700 people dying a day from poverty before all this happened. And not a word, not a debate, not a presidential debate about poverty, not a presidential debate, uh, even about, say, voting rights. We have less voting rights today than we had August 6, 1965, because the Voting Rights Act has been gutted. We're talking about racism. Mm. McConnell has blocked fixing the Voting Rights Act for over 2,000 days. Strom Thurmond blocked the Civil Rights Act of 1957 for one day, and we called him a racist. Mm -hmm. So we're going to even have to expand how we talk about racism. We've got Mm -hmm. 53 cents of every discretionary dollar being spent on the military, less than 15 cents of every discretionary dollar spent on infrastructure, education, health care. Let the protests continue. Let them deepen. Open our consciousness up. I hope they fully break us open to a kind of consciousness that says the America that was had some good points, but it surely wasn't good enough, and it has to change. I don't even want to go back to a new normal. Mm. Maybe that's not where we need Mm -hmm. to be. Maybe we need a full transformation and a revolution of values in this moment and a revival, a moral constitutional revival in this country. You always make me want to say amen. Amen. Well, agnostics can say amen. Amen. <laughs> always, yeah. always. So I wouldn't be doing a very good job if I didn't ask you about the Poor People's Campaign and the big event you have coming up in a few weeks. Well, we've been organizing for three years. Everybody can go to www.june2020. June 2020. And on that day, we had planned to be on Pennsylvania Avenue with tens of tens of thousands of people from 45 states. Mm. It's now going to be a live stream event. Mass Poor People's Assembly, Moral March on Washington, D.C., Digital Gathering. And it's, it's the first salvo to say the narrative is changing and we're going to be a power. And, we're, and the theme of it is somebody's been hurting our brothers and sisters and it's gone on far too long and we won't be silent anymore. Beautiful, beautiful. Mm-hmm.
you are um, just have have been for years for me um, since Moral Mondays when I first heard of you, um, such an inspiration and a voice that I want to follow. So, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. You know what? You have a rare you have a rare combination of speaking the truth and knowing how to win, which is that is. Uh oh. All right. You go ahead. Take care. Um, thank you so much for coming and um, have a good call. Bye bye. Right. Take care. Bye bye. If you want to learn more about the Digital March, go to www.poorpeoplescampaign.org. You can register there and you can also order Reverend Barber's book, We Are Called to Be a Movement, that's coming out this week. On Twitter, he's at Rev Dr. Barber. All Ears is a production of Fork Films. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and spread the word. Thoughts, questions, feedback? You can reach us at podcast at forkfilms.com. And thanks to my All Ears team, Kathleen Hughes, Aideen Kane, Alexis Pancrazi, Christine Schomer, Kat Vecchio, Lauren Winbush, and Sabrina Yates. Our theme music was composed by Bob Golden. Thanks for listening.